Hello and welcome back to The Bunker Daily with me, Jude Rogers. We thought we'd take your mind off the American election for one day only by revisiting another explosive event from history. Welcome to the Bonfire Night edition. If you can't have a bonfire tonight, and not a lot of us can, we can at least find out more about the man who should be sitting on top of it, twisted firework starter Guy Fawkes. The Catholic convert who became the face and fall guy for the failed gunpowder plot of 1605 is possibly a more potent symbol now than at any time since he carried the can for Robert Catesby, Thomas Winter and the rest of the gang. In 2020, you're never far away from someone on Twitter claiming that Guy Fawkes was the last honest man to enter Parliament. He's become the face of the anarchist anti-hero V in Alan Moore and David Lloyd's V for Vendetta. And the online hacker movement Anonymous have used his image too. When someone can be used to represent both Antifa and a muckraking right-wing news site, you know he has become a complicated symbol. But who was Guy Fawkes really, and how should we understand him today? I'm joined by the author of the book, The Real Guy Fawkes, Nick Holland, who's also a major expert on the Brontes, and he's just launched a Kickstarter for his new imprint, Hanover Press, which will resurrect lost Victorian fiction. More on that later. Hi, Nick. Thanks for joining us today. Hello. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Why has Guy Fawkes become such a contentious figure in recent years, do you think? You know, for hundreds of years of British history, he was a fairly straightforward villain. You know, the man we burnt on a bonfire. Why is he relevant now? Yes, he's more relevant than ever, it seems. He's certainly more in the news or on social media than ever. Now, the reasons for that, I think, are manyfold. He's a complicated man, which allows both sides to claim him. Brexiters claiming Guy Fawkes on their side when, in effect, he'd fought for Europe, fought for the Spanish army. And now we see um, anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers proclaiming we need another Guy Fawkes, we need to blow up Parliament again. So I think, really, he's a symbol of unrest. But that's not necessarily what the real Guy Fawkes was. Tell us what sort of man was he and you know, what sources you found to dig into those details. He was a complex man because whilst he was at the forefront of this Catholic rebellion, this Catholic terror plot, he was born a Protestant. He was also a very intelligent and well-educated man, and and people who knew him said how kind he was. So he's he's definitely got two sides to his character, and that's why he's he's lasted so long. I think why he's become more than just a you know a straw-filled figure. You talk in your book about um, the gunpowder plot mentality. Can you tell us a bit about that mentality and, you know, the historical context around what was going on um, at that point? Obviously, this is um, 1605. We're kind of um, in the time of James. And, you know, we've just got through the 16th century of all that religious roller coaster, really, of um, of Catholic to Protestant rulers and uh, all the turbulence that comes there. The 16th century was the time of the Reformation, when when the church split into Catholic and and Protestant, to put it in simple terms. And in 1603, a seismic event happened when Queen Elizabeth died, and she'd no no children, obviously. So the throne passed to um, her cousin twice removed, James VI of Scotland, who became James I of England. Now, Catholics at that time thought this is a good thing, because James was married to a, to a Catholic. And a Catholic emissary, really, called Thomas Percy, went to see James in Scotland before he came to England and was promised that there'd be more religious freedom, that the fines for Catholics would stop, Catholics being sent to prison, priests being hung, drawn and quartered would stop. But once James came to England and became King of England and Scotland, he went back on his word and conditions got even worse. And some Catholics decided 
you know, they just couldn't take this anymore. And chief amongst those really was a man called Robert Catesby. Now he'd been involved in Catholic uprisings and Catholic agitation for quite a while. He'd had to sell his family home to pay the fines he'd had. And by 1603, 1604, he thought, well, we can't take any more of this. But still, Guy was one of the leaders. He was the fourth person recruited to the plot. So he wasn't just a foot soldier. He was involved in the planning from an early stage. And he was recruited specifically because he'd served in the Spanish army for 13 years. And he'd got a lot of experience of using gunpowder in siege warfare. But, you know, obviously he was caught, you know, minding the gunpowder in the undercroft. So is he in some ways a rather tragic figure? He is. You could certainly look at him in that way. He was caught just after midnight on November 5th. And Parliament was due to start, was due to hold the opening ceremony at around eight o'clock on the 5th of November. So he was just seven or eight hours away from blowing the building up, blowing the Lords and the King up. So he was very close to succeeding. It was tragic in a way because it was what he wholeheartedly believed in. He wanted to bring an end to the oppression of Catholics, but he was hours away from succeeding and it ended with him and all his fellow conspirators being killed in action, being killed in a fight or being executed. Are there any big misconceptions around the plot? You know, what do we get wrong about that story? One of the things that people get wrong about the plot is seeing Guy Fawkes as a political figure by modern standards. Guy wasn't interested in what we'd see as politics today in right or left. It was really a religious matter as far as he was concerned. And again, some people think he was a heroic figure for trying to take direct action. As you say, there's the whole joke that he was the last person to enter Parliament with honest intentions. But he'd no compunction at all about killing thousands of people and blowing up that whole area of London. It's estimated that he'd gathered enough gunpowder to blow up the Houses of Parliament 25 times over. How has his image changed over time? Now you're talking about um, the strength of his Catholicism. It makes me think about the um, Lewis bonfire in East Sussex, which I've been to several times over the years. You know, it's the only place where I've seen effigies of popes still burnt. You know, admittedly, you get a few Donald Trumps and Nigel Farage's burnt as well. But um, when did that shift happen um, from commemorating him to, for, to it becoming a celebration of something else? Well, the first bonfire night was uh, in 1605, really, on the day he was captured. The news quickly spread. And shortly after that, Parliament made it compulsory to remember this night. So bonfire night became a compulsory following. Every parish had to light a bonfire and celebrate it. And that continued up until the 19th century when the act was repealed. But I think really it's the 20th century, the late 20th century, that, that's seen a real shift in opinions towards Guy. I think social media has had a big impact on it. People are able to express their views easily and spread it amongst thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of people. Whereas before, they'd simply talk to their family and friends and that would be it. So I think that's helped foster yeah, some extremist views, unfortunately. But also it's helped to re rehabilitate figures like Guy Fawkes because people say, well, I hate Parliament, Guy Fawkes hated Parliament, let's, let's get behind Guy Fawkes. I think that's part of it. You wrote about Guy recently in The New European and you talk about his pro-European leanings. You know, do you think he would have been a Remainer? I, I think so, simply because I can't imagine um, for the life of me Guy Fawkes being behind somebody like Boris Johnson and, and Dominic Cummings. Um, but yes, he left 
England behind to fight for the Spanish army. And, uh, some people at the time, and some people today probably, would say that was a form of treason, but certainly Guy didn't see that. He saw it as going to fight for what he believed in, which was Catholicism, but, but really that was Europe as well, because Spain and Catholicism was synonymous with mainland Europe at, at that time. So he was fighting for a cause he believed in, the cause of Europe, and I think he'd do the same thing today if he, if somehow he was still around. Hopefully he wouldn't blow anyone up, but uh, but I think he'd definitely be a, on the side of Remain. What do you think of the um, image now of Guy Fawkes, as you've mentioned, in V for Vendetta? You know, it's a kind of an emptying out in a way of who he was. How do you feel about it as someone who's done so much research on him? Well, I mean, it's a good piece of entertainment, obviously. So it's it's fine if you look at V for Vendetta in that sense. But um, they really have misappropriated his, his image, his name, um, because he wasn't somebody who was fighting for a political cause. He wasn't somebody who was fighting for anarchy. Guy Fawkes and the conspirators didn't want anarchy. They wanted to kill the king and their ruling peers, the lords, but then they intended to replace them with Catholic peers and with a Catholic queen, a puppet queen, really. So it wasn't that they wanted to overthrow the English system. They just wanted an English system that worked how they wanted it to work. Are there any historical questions, just to finish, that remain unanswered or open to debate about Guy Fawkes? Are there any Guy Fawkes truthers out there? Well, there is a debate, really, surrounding the whole plot as to how it was discovered and who gave it away. The, The simple way that it got discovered is that there was a letter called the Montego letter warning him that Parliament was going to be blown up when it reconvened and telling him not to go there. Montego passed it to the court, to Cecil, who was Queen Elizabeth's right-hand man, like the Dominic Cummings of his day, really. And that's what led to the searching of the undercourt and the discovery of Guy Fawkes. So there's a lot of debate, though, on how that letter came to be, who wrote it, who sent it. And just about everyone in the plot gets um, fingered at some point as, 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 the, uh, as the double agent, like Robert Catesby, for example, who, who was a mastermind of the plot. He's often spoke of as a potential double agent who was working for Queen Elizabeth and working for Cecil. Guy Fawkes even occasionally is thought to be a double agent, but that's unlikely, I, I think. Uh, or he wouldn't have been sat there waiting to be captured and, and executed. I think the most likely person is a man called um, Francis Tresham, who was the 13th and final plotter to be recruited. And there's also a bit of a conspiracy about whether he actually was executed. He was taken to the Tower of London and he died in the Tower of London, but he wasn't executed. And some people say that he was smuggled out of the country as a reward for being a double agent and, and foiling the gunpowder plot. So so we'll never know the truth of that. We'll never know who actually did betray the plot. So there's lots of conspiracies out there still, lots of truth that could one day be unravelled. Absolutely. It sounds like... Um... You know, a big director needs to get on this and uh, explore the story in full. That's the way we get about it, isn't it? That's how we educate the public. Get something that will stream on Netflix by the next November the 5th. A proper pot boiler would be fantastic. Oh, be well, that was fun. very interesting, Nick. Thanks for being with us today. That was really interesting. Um, before you go, tell us about Hanover Press and your project to rescue and republish lost Victorian classics. Yes, thank you. Well, I've just launched a uh, Kickstarter project yesterday to uh, found a publisher called Hanover Press. Our aim is to rescue and republish lost Victorian novels. We all know novelists like Charles Dickens, like Charlotte Bronte, George Eliot, these great literary figures, but there were lots and lots of other Victorian writers who who rarely get talked about, rarely get read today, women like Julia Kavanagh, amongst others, 
and you can only get their books now in in really badly scanned ebooks and that's not doing them or the stories justice my idea is to publish them in high quality paperback books so people can enjoy the books once more and you know, I'm thrilled the way the Kickstarter's going. It's fully funded after a day, so hopefully other people will come along and back it as well. But but it just shows that people absolutely still love literature. They still love the arts. And no matter what horrors are going on in the world of politics, at least that's something positive that, that's going on in the world, I think. Well, we look forward to um, to seeing those books when they um, come into being. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Nick, for joining us in the bunker. Or I suppose, as we will call it for one day only, the Undercroft. Um, <laughs> and to the rest of the listeners out there, remember, remember the 5th of November, Gunpowder, Podcasts and Plot. You can support our valuable work on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. And remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Friday with the main panel show on Tuesdays and start your week on Mondays. I'm off to stuff some old pyjamas with newspaper and sit him on the front step. Nothing you can say can take me away from my guy. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Jude Rogers. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.